All right, well, grab your Bible and let's turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51. Follow along as I read Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word. Oh, Father, may you come now and by the power of your Spirit do this work in our own hearts. Help us to be brought low to hear your word, and to respond in faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I first became a believer, I was on a mission. I had just experienced God's saving grace in my life, and I was just thrilled, excited to go share the gospel with anyone and everyone, but more specifically, I wanted the gospel to reach my family, my neighbors. I remember going to my next-door neighbor's house. We really loved this family. Uh, played basketball with the young boys, cared about uh, mom and dad. And I remember sitting down on the couch in the living room and uh, sharing the gospel with the dad. And as I was sharing the gospel, I got to the point of forgiveness. And I was describing how God had changed my life and forgiven me. And I remember saying something to the effect of, no matter the sin, God in his grace is willing to forgive if we would repent. And I remember he stopped me in my tracks. His expression changed. And he was actually upset. He said, look, mijo, look, son, I've been a police officer for a long time. I've seen the worst of the worst. I've seen pimps, drug dealers, crackheads, gang members, pedophiles, rapists, murders, 
You name it, I've seen it all. I've had to sit down with single parents and explain to them how their sons were shot and killed over senseless gang crimes. I've had to go into houses and remove kids from moms who are strung out on heroin, prostituting themselves. And then he said this, people like that shouldn't be forgiven very easily. You can't just say you're sorry and then expect to be welcomed into heaven. And then he said this, and this rocked my world. He said, if there is a God, I don't want anything to do with him if he forgives people like that. You know, my neighbor, he believed that people who committed heinous crimes, that they should not, they could not be forgiven. His mentality was, if we've arrested a wicked person, then we throw them in prison and we toss away the key. Wicked people don't deserve forgiveness. You see, the major obstacle, as I was trying to explain the gospel to him, was that he didn't realize that his own sin put him in the exact same predicament. And I realize as I come and open up the word this morning that there might be people in here who are very much like the prodigal's older brother and like my neighbor, right? You look at everyone else's sin and you think it's deplorable, it's despicable, but you've never really taken spiritual inventory of your own life. Or you might be like the prodigal himself. You've sinned and sinned and sinned and you've done some pretty wicked things and you're thinking, man, Have I fallen out of grace with God? Can God actually forgive me for the things that I've done? There might be someone here who you've heard forgiveness. You know that it's a turning away from sin, but you're not quite sure what that's supposed to look like. What what, what are you supposed to do to really repent of your sin? Well, Psalm 51 is going to answer that for us this morning. In this psalm, we see a man who clearly understood the depth of his sin. And he has a desperate need for repentance. David, Israel's king, had not only committed a heinous crime, but when you consider it, he broke the majority of the Ten Commandments. He coveted, he stole, he committed adultery, he lied, he murdered, and every sin that he committed against his fellow men, ultimately, this horizontal sinning was a representation of his wicked heart against the vertical God, and therefore breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. And yet, when we open up to Psalm 51, we see that despite the magnitude of David's crimes, there's a God, a God who graciously forgives David's sins. And what we learn is that that's not a God that just forgives David's sins, but a God who is willing to forgive any sinner who would but humble himself and genuinely repent of his sin. Now, Psalm 51, it's uh, one of the seven penitential psalms. You'll notice a glaring difference between this psalm and the other six. Usually when you look at the other six, they're, they're mourning, they're, they're giving sorrow over mostly external issues. So whether it's a neighboring nation that's an issue, an oppressive nation, or it's a sickness, those psalms, they lament an external issue. But when we get to Psalm 51, what we see is that David is lamenting the worst problem of it all, and that is an eternal, sinful issue. It's the issue of man's nature, our sinful human nature. You know, when we open the Bible, we see the depravity of man on display. It's clear as day when we read the pages of Scripture. 
The Bible's brutally honest with man's sin. And to be honest, I kind of find that comforting because when I look at my own life, when I look at the narrative of my story, what I see is repeated failures. What I see is mistake after mistake after mistake, bonehead decision after bonehead decision, even though I know what's right. I'm a sinner in need of grace. This morning, you're a sinner in need of grace. And this is what we see in Psalm 51. Grace, grace, grace. God, we need your grace. Well, before we get into the text, before we look at verse 1, we see here that there is a title to Psalm 51. It says there, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We just read the story found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then there's Nathan's confrontation in 2 Samuel chapter 12. When you look at, why don't you turn real quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 11, what we just read. I want you to notice something, and maybe you've never noticed this before. There's a literary device that the author uses to really draw us in to the thick of the story, to really get us involved in the drama of the narrative. There's one word that's repeated over and over again in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and that word is the word sent. Look at verse 1. What does David do? David sent Joab into battle. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about Bathsheba. Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Verse 27, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. You read that narrative and you see that word. There's something that God is signifying here. It seems like every time David sends a messenger, he gets in more trouble and more trouble. And things get worse and worse for him. I can tell you this. David didn't wake up that morning excited to ruin his life. I don't think any of us in here wake up in the morning, hit the alarm clock, and we're thrilled to send our life down the tubes with our sin. But take note. For David, it just started with a simple look. That's it. Men, women, just a look. Maybe an innocent look. No such thing. That look turned into lust. That lust turned into adultery. That adultery turned into conspiracy. And that ultimately ended in murder. And you read that narrative and you say, is that really a man after God's own heart? Because it doesn't look like David is anywhere near God's heart. But before David makes complete and total shipwreck of his faith, before he ruins his relationship with God, we see one final and decisive use of the word send. Do you see it there in the text? It's in chapter 12. Look at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And in an act of undeserved, extravagant grace, God sends his messenger to David. Because despite David's unfaithfulness, despite his arrogance and pride and lust, despite his total disregard for God's word, God sends David a gracious 
message. And the message is this, David, you are guilty. You're guilty. My eyes have been on you the whole time. You thought you were doing this in secret. You thought you were fixing the problem. Nothing could be further from the truth, David. I've been watching. And God essentially tells David, you know what? Enough of you making a mess of everything. It's my turn to act. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to humble you to the very core. I'm going to expose your heart. And so God sends his messenger to confront David. That's the context of this psalm. And what we see in Psalm 51 is how God responds, or David responds to God's confrontation. David's confession in Psalm 51, it reveals two petitions, two petitions that demonstrate a heart of genuine repentance. This psalm has become a model for all sinners of all time to seek true repentance and to experience the forgiveness of God. So my outline, very easy. Point number one, in verses one through nine, David pleads, remove my sin. Point number two, in verses 10 through 12, recreate my heart. These two petitions demonstrate a heart of genuine repentance. If you're here this morning and you want to know how you could be made right with God, how you could have restored fellowship with God, how you could be made clean before God, it's right here in Psalm 51. If you want to experience liberation, the same liberation that David experienced, the same forgiveness that David experienced, it's right here in Psalm 51. So point number one, a truly repentant sinner pleads with God to remove his sin. Now notice, verse one, David's prayer begins with, have mercy on me, O God. The starting point for the removal of sin is God. The focus isn't just on the sin, The focus isn't on the sinner. The focus is on the very character of God and how that gracious God is able to remove the sin and forgive the sinner. The spotlight is on God's own character. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this. That is the primary motivation to seek repentance. When we take our eyes off ourselves and our sin and put it on God's character, Now notice, David's not simply asking God just to cut him some slack, right? He doesn't come to God and say, please, just just sweep this under the rug. Let's just forget this. Let's, Let's forget this ever happened. No, there's a sense of urgency, and the sense of urgency came in this. David just pronounced judgment on himself. When Nathan said, when Nathan said, you are that man, that was after David said, that guy deserves to die. No, but David, you are the man. When David said that man deserves to die, he realized that he deserved to die. He deserved to be punished. And so he says, Lord, don't treat me as I deserve. Be merciful to me. Treat me in the exact opposite way that I deserved to be treated. He longs for God to be gracious to him. We heard this this past Wednesday The difference between mercy and grace, you've heard this plenty of times. People say mercy is not getting what you deserve. And then they compare the grace and they say grace is what? Getting what you don't deserve. I think it's more than that. 
We're not undeserving people. We're much worse. We're not undeserving. We're ill-deserving. David's problem was not that he deserved nothing. His problem was that he deserved the full wrath of God. He pronounced swift judgment on the man in Nathan's parable. Well, how much more the representative of all of Israel? Now, he's supposed to be setting the standard for the people. He's God's own chosen. And yet, now he's exposed for adultery and and murder. There's no doubt about it, friends. David deserved death. But look at this. David wasn't merely looking to avoid his punishment. His request goes way beyond that. Be gracious to me. Not because I deserve it. Not because I've earned it. He's not negotiating with God. He doesn't appeal to anything that he did or will do or can do. The only thing that a weak and needy and desperate sinner can do is appeal to the graciousness of God. It's all God's character. David knew that God was a God of mercy. He knew God was a God of grace and loving kindness. From his early childhood, he had been memorizing the Scripture. One of his responsibilities of the king was to continue to write out the book of Moses, to meditate on it, to memorize it. You know, when David talks about, oh, Lord, on on my bed I meditate on your law day and night, there's no doubt in my mind that there were plenty of days where David was lying down on his bed and he was just musing over Exodus 34, the character of God, as it was revealed to Moses. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, David knew that verse and he knew it well. How do I know that? Because the language is almost identical when we come to Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. See, the only thing that a desperate sinner could do is to bank on the very character of God. Listen, you won't know the joy of forgiveness unless you understand forgiveness in light of God's character. What makes forgiveness so beautiful is not just the removal of guilt. It's not just having a clear conscience. It's not that gigantic sigh of relief when your sin and punishment is diverted. Man, what makes forgiveness so sweet is the restored fellowship with this gracious God. Especially when you recognize that you don't deserve an ounce of it. That's what's so wonderful about forgiveness. And that's exactly what David's pleading for. David is desperate to have his sin removed so that he can enjoy sweet fellowship with God and he can be restored. And I think the text reveals three proofs Three proofs that demonstrate how serious he is about his repentance. We know David is serious about his repentance because he takes ownership of his sin. He takes ownership of his sin. A truly repentant sinner will take ownership of his sin. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Do you see David taking inventory here in these first couple verses? Verse 1, blot out my transgression. 
Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. There's no blame shifting here from David. He's not making excuses. What we see in David is taking complete and total ownership. And I'll just say this, I've got such a difficult time doing that. And you do too. If we're being honest with one another. And this goes all the way back to the garden. Adam, well, you're the one that gave her to me. She's your creation. Eve, it was the serpent. He's a crafty guy. He's the one that led me into sin. You know, more times than I like to admit, I've blamed my anger on my kids. I've come home from work. I've come home in a happy mood. And that switches because, hmm, my kids are just getting under my skin. And I blame, my, I blame my anger on my kids. The same thing comes when I lust. Rather than taking inventory of my own heart, my own neglect to believe and trust God, that woman's barely wearing anything. And I blame my lust on something else. Sometimes I blame my lack and love of consideration toward my wife on not having the perfect model growing up. What I find is I'm really good at making excuses. And I think you understand what I'm talking about. We're very gifted when it comes to making excuses and pointing the finger. But that's not what we see from David here. No, he takes complete ownership of his sin. Listen, one of the defining characteristics of genuine confession is the courage to call your sin what it is. It's your sin. It's your sin. No one forces you to sin. The devil doesn't make you sin. The biggest problem isn't your circumstances. It's not your childhood. It's not the economy. It's not the stress that you're dealing with at work. Your kids aren't the problem. Your spouse isn't the problem. The culture isn't the problem. Those things aren't the biggest culprit. You know what the problem is? It's you. It's me. We're the issue. One writer said that when we come to David, he's not blame shifting. He said he understood that at the heart of the problem was the problem of his own heart. At the heart of the problem was the problem of his own heart. David's repentance was genuine because he took ownership of his sin. Secondly, you know you're serious about your repentance when you recognize the seriousness of your sin. David recognized the seriousness of his sin, and every truly repentant sinner will recognize the seriousness of his sin. Notice all the words that are used. Verse 1, transgressions. Verse 2, iniquity. Sin. Verse 3, transgression. Sin. Verse 4, I have sinned and I have done what? Evil in your sight. You see, collectively, the reason why we see this repetition is because the Lord is pointing out in this confession that these were all acts of deliberate rebellion. David isn't confessing just a few mess-ups. I've made a couple mistakes. What we say on the basketball court, oh, my bad, my bad. David is not saying that. David is acknowledging his deliberate decision to disobey God and to act contrary to to act contrary to what he knew was right. David was ignoring his conscience. 
David was living in rebellion. There's no other way to say it. See, the real sin in David's life, it wasn't adultery. His sin wasn't murder. None of that, when you look at the psalm, is mentioned in the prayer. The real sin in David's life was treason. It was treason against God. It was disloyalty to his God. God said, live this way, and David said, no. God said, love this way, David, and David said, no. Not your will be done, God. My will be done. That is total disregard for God's word. It's contempt toward God. It's disdain for God's law. And every time we do the same thing, we dishonor God. And that's exactly what Nathan came to say. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, he said this, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You see, once David resolved to do his will and not God's, he committed the highest act of treason. Look at verse 4. He acknowledged the seriousness of this. He said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is what makes sin so exceedingly sinful. It's against a holy and sovereign God. Think about sin, the definition of sin. There is no sin apart from God. It's what defines what sin is. Sin is sin because it is against a holy God. We say sin is missing the mark. Well, the mark of what? We say sin is falling short of the standard. Well, who's the standard? It's God. You cannot have sin apart from God. And it's serious because it's against God. Now, one morning I was uh, at the gym with our brother Josue. He was preparing his message for Teen Challenge later on that week. And we're discussing as he's, he's in the scriptures and we're talking about this. And there's a guy that's lifting right next to us. And he kind of overhears and he politely interjects. And he says, hey, uh, excuse me, can I, can I just jump in right there? I said, sure. And he said, you guys are Christians? And we said, yeah, Christians. And he said, well, um, you know, I, I hear you talking and you're, you're mentioning sin quite a bit. He said, uh, I, think, I think we shouldn't really be talking about sin so much. I think we need to talk about the love of God. People need to hear about the love of God. And I, you know, I appreciated his comment. But I told him graciously, I said, uh, oh, I, I love the love of God. But the only way that we'll fully be able to grasp and to understand the height and the breadth and the width of the love of God is we understand how much we don't deserve it because of our sin. When we understand the separation that our sin brought, when we understand that we don't deserve God's love, we deserve wrath. Our sin deserves wrath. I said when we get there, when we understand the depths of our sin, that's when we'll love and appreciate God's love for us. That's when we'll embrace God's grace. David understood that he sinned against God and God alone, and it was serious. Now, of course, when you read the narrative, we recognize that, hey, look, David just didn't sin against God, right? He sinned against other people. There's Bathsheba. There's Uriah. There's Uriah's dad, Uriah's mom, Uriah's family. There's David's wife, there's David's kids, there's David's army, there's the whole nation of Israel that David sinned against. There's a long list of people that David offended and transgressed. People's lives were impacted by his sin. 
But ultimately, every sin against his fellow man was first a sin against God. See, though he injured man, his sin was ultimately against God. Our sin is ultimately against God. When I sin against my wife, when I sin against my kids, I'm sinning against God. And that is why David affirms at the end of verse 4, see it? Verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgments. David is saying, God, look, you are perfectly just to condemn me for my sin. I deserve this punishment. I have no case, no defense in the courtroom of God to overturn your judgment. It is totally fair and appropriate. Because of my sin, no matter how great, no matter how small in the eyes of man, in your eyes, it's absolute treachery. And God, he not only had the right to condemn David for his sin, all the things that we see in 2 Samuel 11, but everything in David's life, all of that was condemned or punishable by death. But David recognized that his sin problem was much, much deeper, much more extensive than his crimes against Uriah and his wife. And that's why he says, look at verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David says, it's, it's been this way since conception. He's confessing this to the Lord. Look, the rebellion and stubbornness of your own heart, that's not some strange inconsistency. That's not some sort of anomaly. That's right in step with your character. And if you haven't figured that out yet, just look at your kids. Just look at your kids. They might look like perfect little angels, but both you and I know that is not the truth. Just last Sunday, Scott's up here, he's preaching. And we've got, uh, he's sleeping now. But we've got Judah, little, little precious angel on mommy's lap. And Judah grabs Sissy's colored pencil. And while Scott's preaching, flings it. He says, oh, no, come on, Judah, don't do that. And so mo both mommy and daddy say, Judah, no, don't do that. And so Judah sweet little face, in an instant, turns sinister. He grabs a couple more pencils and flings it even further. And then he looks at mommy and daddy and goes, no! You don't have to wait to the teenage years. It's not junior high. Hey, it's not even one year old. It was that way since he was in the belly. This is the sinful human nature of man. But look, if you take ownership of your sin, and if you see the seriousness of your sin, well, what's next? What do you do? You need to ask God to remove your sin. And that brings me to the third point here. David looks to God to remove his sin. A truly repentant sinner will look to God to remove his sin. He asked God to do what only God can do. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You're the one that needs to do it, God. You blot it out. You wash me. You cleanse me. These three words that David uses here, they're rituals that God instituted for the forgiveness of sins. Blot out. That's, a, that's language that an accountant would use to, to wipe clean the ledger, to make it clean, to erase it. He's saying, God, eradicate any trace of sin in my life. Give me a clean slate. And then he says, wash me. This idea of washing, it carries the idea of, of vigorous scrubbing. Because back in the day, they don't have shout to go. 
right? You can't just throw something in the washing machine. If you wanted to get rid of a stain, you had to scrub that thing and wash that thing and beat that thing. And that's what David is saying to God. Do this to my own heart. Cleanse me from my sin. He's saying, look, I can't be in your presence unless you purify me. Verse 6 says, behold, look, you delight in truth and the inward being. You see the contrast there in verses 5 and verse 6? Verse 5 says, in sin did my mother conceive me. But verse 6 says, you delight in truth and the inward being. There's a big problem there. What you are and what you desire are two totally different things. What God desires, what He requires of you, it doesn't match up with who you are by your very nature. You see, God wants purity of heart. He wants holiness. He wants faithfulness. And when you look inside your heart, guess what? It's not there by nature. By nature, what you have deep-rooted, deep-seated in your heart is rebellion and sin. At the very core, we're all infected with the corruption of sin since birth. And the sooner we realize it, the better. So David prays, oh God, teach me wisdom and do it in the secret heart. Because if I'm going to be any difference, I need you to teach me. I can't figure this out on my own. I can't make myself right. I can't learn this on my own. You're going to have to teach me so I can be transformed. You're going to have to teach me so I can learn what it means to be pleasing to you. He's asking God to rearrange his very nature. He's acknowledging his dependence on God. Only God can produce that kind of change in David's life. And so he says, verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I don't know about you, but I've never, ever asked someone to purge me. And I certainly haven't asked someone to purge me with hyssop. So what is David talking about here? Hyssop was uh, a little shrub with like broom-like feathers. And it was used by the priest. The priest would come and they would sprinkle blood on a house, usually to indicate that this is now clean. And if there's a leper there and he was purified, they would pour the blood but the first time we encounter this whole idea of hyssop, it's, uh, it's at the Passover. You remember what God instituted? The Passover where a sacrificial lamb would have to be slaughtered and that blood from the lamb was poured into a basin and each family would have to get hyssop, dip it into that basin of blood and they would have to point, they have to, they have to paint it along the, um, the edges of the door frame. And the reason God said that they needed to do that is because the angel of death was coming. And he was going to put to death the firstborn if there was not the sacrificial blood on the doorpost. That's the first time we encounter it. When you consider that, in light of that, David is praying, apply that blood to me, God. I need that blood. That's the only way I could be clean. Literally what he's saying is unsin me. De-sin me. If you apply the sacrificial blood to me, then, and only then, can I be whiter than snow. You say, well, how, how does that de-sinning actually happen? The only way for a sinner to be de-sinned, to be unsinned, is by a substitutionary sacrifice. That's what all the, the sacrificial system pointed to in the Old Testament. An innocent life, dying in the place of a guilty life. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is what? There is no forgiveness. 
Why did David require the blood, the death of the man, the parable that Nathan told him? Because he was guilty and his crime deserved death. And now David finds himself in the exact same position. His crimes deserve nothing but death. And the only way for him to be cleansed is through blood. This purging by God was the only way that David could be restored. It was the only way that David would experience joy again. And that's what he prays. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You see, David was so far removed from the joy and gladness he once experienced, his sin was tearing him up inside. Instead of joy, agony. He was in emotional and physical turmoil. Psalm 32, which is another penitential psalm, in verse 3 says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you experienced that? When you keep your sin covered up? Have you experienced that? I would not put it past a room this large that many of you are just hiding sin. You think no one else sees it. No one else knows. Oh, I I just know this is the case. I've been in church ministry for way too long. It's not strange for men to be looking at pornography on Saturday night and come here with a heart full of hypocrisy and sing songs and read their Bibles and listen. It just, it happens. All kind of sin going on, uncovered. You know what's terrifying? If that's happening, and you don't even feel a twinge of conviction. The conscience is muted. See, but for David, he's wasting away. He's groaning on the inside. His bones are shattered. You say, well, what what brought... David relief. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 32. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my heart. You see, the joylessness, the bones that were crushed, they were all a result of unconfessed sin. But notice, the source of that affliction, it came directly from God. It was God's hand who was afflicting him. Verse 8, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God was the one that was making David feel miserable. It was his hand that was heavy upon him. Why? Because God is gracious and merciful. And I would just tell you right now, if, if you have unconfessed sin, if you're harboring something in your heart, if you're not dealing with it, if you're not exposing it, Don't ignore what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. Don't ignore it. Welcome it. That is a gracious gift of God to expose it. You might have to have a hard conversation. You're going to have to humble yourself and confess these things to the Lord and someone else. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's someone at work, a family member. But do that. The most terrifying thing is for you, again, to not feel one ounce of remorse, regret, conviction. That's terrifying because that might be an indication that 
you don't have the Spirit of God in your life. What David wants is he wants his bones to rejoice. He wants to be renewed. He wants to be restored. He says, literally, let the bones dance which you've broken. Let me experience joy again. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out my guilt. Cast it as far as the east is from the west. So David says, remove my sin. That's his plea. How do we know his plea for forgiveness was genuine? He took ownership of his sin. He recognized the seriousness of his sin. He looked to God to remove his sin. Do you take ownership? Do you recognize the seriousness of your sin? Are you looking to God and God alone to remove your sin? If not, there's no way you've experienced genuine repentance. This is it, genuine repentance. You might be remorseful. That's not the same thing as repentance. You know, you think about people like Esau and King Saul and Judas. Each of those men were remorseful, even to the point of tears, but they never found a place for true repentance because what they wanted removed was the sorrow. They didn't want the sin removed so they could enjoy fellowship with the living God again. You know your repentance is genuine when you say, look, I did it. It's serious, and I need God to remove it. And this leads me to David's second plea in verses 10 through 12. His prayer doesn't stop with forgiveness. You can't stop there. He wants newness. It's great to have your sins removed, but David realizes he needed more than that. David wasn't content with mere removal of sin. He longed, he pleaded for a heart of obedience. So he says, recreate my heart. A truly repentant sinner pleads with God to recreate his heart. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you see what David is asking for in these verses? What's he asking God to do? He's not asking for God to make some improvements. He's not asking for a couple minor adjustments, a little moral tweak here and there. What's he asking for? He's asking for a clean heart. That's what he needs above all else. See, it's wonderful if you have your sins removed. That's great. But what's going to prevent you from uh, making the same mistakes once you have your sins removed? What's going to keep you from the cycle of sin? David knows that his cleaning efforts, they can't reach deep down to where they need to go in order for him to be renewed. And so, God, or so David asked for a miracle, something only God can do. Make me a different person. Transform me, God. You know, David's word choice is very intentional here in verse 10. Look at it. He begins with the word what? Create. It's the Hebrew word bara. In the Old Testament, every use of that word bara, it's strictly reserved for the creative work of God alone. It's never, ever used of any human effort or human achievement. God alone is the subject of the verb bara. So he's saying, God, you do this miracle in my life. And he wants us to think back to Genesis. God's creative power on display. God creating something out of nothing. He's saying, God, do that in my own heart. Make me new. I had a very teachable moment with, uh, with my daughter, Kyla, a couple of months ago. It was one of those days where Kyla and Titus, they were just at one another's necks. And uh, you know how it goes. Titus does something to aggravate Kyla. Kyla lashes out in anger. 
So she gives him a swift punch to the gut. Oh, no, no, no. Kyla, go to the bathroom. I go and check Titus, make sure. Okay, you're good. And then I march my way to the bathroom to discipline my daughter. I walk in the door, and Kyla is there up against the back wall with her head planted in her knees and her face, or her hands, and she's just weeping. She's just weeping. And before I get a chance to say anything, Kyla says to me, Daddy, maybe I should just leave. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I I thought I didn't have to deal with that for like 10 more years, right, when she's a teenager. So, Kyla, what do you mean uh, you should just leave? And she said, Daddy, I don't want to be mean. I hate that I'm mean. I want to love my brother. I want to be sweet to my brother. I want to be kind. I just can't do it. I can't do it. And then she said, maybe you and mommy need to send me away because I'm so mean. And that just broke my heart. I got down on my knees with Kyla, and I just started weeping. And I said, Kyla, you don't need to be sent away, sweetie. Mommy and daddy would never, ever send you away. What you need is a new heart. You need God to come and transform your heart so that you would love to be obedient, so that you would love to love your brother, so that you won't be mean anymore. Look, Kyla, mommy and daddy make mistakes all the time. Mommy and daddy, we sin all the time. We do things that we don't want to do. We do things we know we shouldn't do. I need Jesus to transform my heart. And we sat there and we prayed together. Isn't that true of us? That, that prayer is not just for a non-believer. That prayer is for believers as well. We need a transformation of the heart. But David also says, I need a new and right spirit. See, without a new and right spirit, we can't please God. We need new desires, new affections. He's talking about the Holy Spirit's work in his life. He needs the power of the Holy Spirit to establish his own spirit, to give him discipline, to make him submissive, to make him obey. He wants a steadfast spirit. He wants to be able to reject sin when it comes. He wants to resist temptation. He wants the Holy Spirit working in his life and doing it powerfully. He'll go right back to his sin the next time, and maybe it's even worse next time for David. And that's why he pleads, Cast, not your, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Literally, don't remove me from your face, God. Don't take the only life-giving, life-empowering, change agent away from me. I need your Spirit. Otherwise, I'm going to continue sinning. You see, without a renewed heart, without a renewed Spirit, without the Holy Spirit working in your life, that's all we're going to do is just return to sin. And it might get worse. David saw this in King Saul. He saw the downfall of King Saul. King Saul, uh, the Bible says, the Spirit of God departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. David saw it firsthand. Saul didn't humble himself. Saul didn't confess his sin. Saul hid his sin. Saul lied about his sin. Saul covered it up. Yeah, there was guilt. There was sorrow. There was remorse. But there was no true repentance. Saul only cared about his kingdom, only his reputation, but not David. David longed to have restored fellowship with God. Do you long to have restored fellowship with God? 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Joylessness comes because of sin. I, I, I tell myself, man, if I only knew back then what I know now. I, t- I tell guys that I work out with and train, man, I would have been such a better athlete if I would have known then what I know now. Don't you say that about your parenting, about your business? If only you would have known then what you know now. If I could jump in my DeLorean and go back in time, I would sit down to Dominic, I would look Dominic eye in the eye, and I'd say this, sin doesn't bring joy. Get that through your thick head, Dom. Sin doesn't give you joy. It kills joy. Sin doesn't bring you happiness. It steals your happiness. David recognizes this, so he says, Restore to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me. You know, I wrote in my Bible many years ago um, something that I want to keep coming back to. I think it's appropriate for us to hear. I think we have it on the screen. Sin will always take you farther than you intended to go. Sin will always hold you longer than you intended to be held. Sin will always make you pay a much greater price that you never intended to pay. Sin will always lead you to other sins you never intended to commit. And sin will always, always strip you away from the joy and intimacy you had with God. You see, sin, it promises liberty, but it only weighs you down with shackles. It promises fulfillment, but only leaves you empty. It guarantees your happiness, but it only multiplies your sorrow. What we learn from King David, joy is not the result of of indulging in sin. Joy is the direct consequence of experiencing God's salvation. Hey, I want to end with this. My neighbor was exactly right. You don't just get to say I'm sorry and go to heaven. Apologies don't get you to heaven. If you've committed a horrific crime, you just can't say I'm sorry and expect to be forgiven. 2 Samuel 12, 13, Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And we should say, what in the world? How is that possible? How can he just be forgiven of his sin? David was pardoned, but it came at an unbelievable price. Look, the only way to be de-sinned, the only way to be unsinned, is if God provides a provision for that forgiveness. The Bible says, there is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. Blood had to be shed for the remission of your sins. The only way for God to be just and justifier at the same time was to provide a substitutionary sacrifice for blood to be spilled. That blood was spilled, and it came at an unmeasurable price, a perfect sacrifice, a pure sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, his blood was, spread, his blood was spilled so that David would be forgiven, so we would be forgiven. The wrath of God was put on Jesus. And not only did he provide the forgiveness that we deserve or didn't deserve, but he provided a righteousness that was not ours by our very nature. You want to be made clean, you need to embrace Christ. When his sacrificial blood is applied to your life, then you can be made clean. White as snow. And that is God's promise. In Isaiah 118, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're a Christian here this morning, your life should be marked by continual repentance. 
you know, 500-year anniversary. Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. He hangs it on the wall. Do any of you know what the first thesis was? Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Believer, are you marked by repentance? Do you own your sin? Recognize the seriousness of your sin. Look to God to remove your sin. And do you ask God to create your heart so that you would be obedient, so you'd want to obey? Let's bow our heads. Well, if you're a believer here this morning, can you think of anything better, anything more praiseworthy than the wonder that God has forgiven every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, all of it forgiven in Jesus Christ? Is there really anything more glorious than that, that there is no condemnation that rests over your head? If you're not a believer, I want you to consider, I want you to take inventory The only way that you could be made right with the holy God is if you recognize the depth of your sin. If you recognize that you are that man, you are that woman, you're guilty. It's no one else's fault. Confess that to him. Acknowledge that. Look to God to remove your sin. If you do, if you humble yourself, if you're contrite of heart, And the promise from Scripture is that we have a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness, who is willing to forgive every single one of your sins, to restore what he designed in the very beginning, sweet fellowship and communion with he himself. Oh, Father, we're grateful for our time this morning in your word. I'm reminded of the publican who wasn't even willing to look up to heaven but he was beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And your word says that man walked away justified in your sight. Lord, we learn from David what it's like to have a heart of genuine repentance. Lord, work this in our lives. Help us to be those that are continually coming to the cross, being washed of our sin. We need you. We need the Spirit's work in our life. We want to be made clean. We want to be renewed. We want to be in right relationship with you. Only you can do that. Work that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.